From the Hutterberg Catechism, we read together Lord's Day 21. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself, by a spirit and word, in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and every one, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and the well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Apostles' Creed we confess that we believe a holy Catholic Christian church. Yet despite confessing that this is a scriptural truth, many people have difficulties with this confession. The first is that we may not fully understand what we are confessing. What do we understand by that word church? We often use the word church to refer to the building where we have our worship services. The Bible never uses the word church to refer to a building. The word church comes from the Greek kuriakos, which means that which belongs to the Lord. The church is the people who belong to the Lord. We confess that already in Lord's Day 1 of the Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We belong to the Lord. That's what makes the church such a wonderful thing. The church belongs to Christ. It is of supreme importance to him. There's a second problem that people have with our confession about the church. There are people who just don't seem to care much about the church today. They view the church as a society or a club of people of similar ethnic background or socioeconomic status. They figure that just as you don't, that just as if you don't like the gym that you're going to and cancel your membership, so you can do the same thing with the church. Their problem is they see the church as a voluntary association of like-minded people. Such people forget about the divine origins of the church. 
They forget that the church has been founded by Christ, that the church belongs to him. In Ephesians 5, the relationship between Christ and the church is compared to marriage. Paul says that Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. Christ loves his bride. He has promised the gates of hell will never prevail against her. And so we should not think of the church in earthly terms. The church is Christ's work. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. Jesus Christ gathers the church for himself from out of this world. We'll see how the church is gathered by Christ's word and spirit, is united by Christ's love, and is forgiven by Christ's blood. Lord's Day 21 begins by asking, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? The question is not, what are your thoughts about it? We may have all kinds of thoughts about the church. They may be based on a negative experience in the church. Perhaps our needs were not met or our gifts were not appreciated. It's possible we've had a run-in with church leadership or been confronted by the hypocrisy of fellow church members. We may think that our church's emphasis is wrong. Perhaps it's too inward-looking, or maybe it's too focused on evangelism. What we think about the church is often tainted by our experiences in this sinful and broken world. And that's why it's important to focus on what we believe about the church. When we speak about what we believe, we need to go back to what the Bible teaches us. The Bible has quite a bit to say about the church. Above all, what stands out from the Bible's teaching is the divine origins of the church. The church is not a voluntary association of people. It is an assembly of true Christian people gathered together by our triune God. In Ephesians 1, Paul makes it clear that God, before the foundation of this world, has chosen in Christ to save a people from out of the fallen human race. The origin of the church thus lies in the sovereign good pleasure of the Father. We don't deserve to be members of the church. The fact that we are is only because of God's mercy and grace. Our church membership ultimately finds its origin in God's choice to redeem us by grace alone. God has not just chosen to call certain people from out of darkness into his marvelous light. God also provided the means of salvation so we could share in his blessings. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Christ came in human flesh to redeem us from our sins and misery. He has ransomed us by his death on the cross. It is only in Christ that we find salvation. The Bible makes clear the close link between Christ and his church. Christ is the foundation of the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11, 
that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Using similar imagery, Peter describes Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone and us as living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house. The point is that Christ is the rock. He is the firm foundation on which the church is built. The church is not built on Jesus Christ and his redeeming work. It cannot stand. The close unity between Christ and his church is further seen in other biblical images. Christ is portrayed as the head and we as his body. Christ is a shepherd, we are his flock. Christ is the vine and we are the branches. Christ is the bridegroom, we are his bride. The point, beloved, is that there is an inseparable connection between Christ and his church. Christ uses means to gather his church. He does so through his spirit and word. We read together this afternoon the last part of Acts 2. Acts 2 tells us about how Christ poured out the Holy Spirit on his church. Signs like a rushing wind and tongues of fire made clear that the Spirit was poured out on the assembly of believers in the upper room. In his Pentecost address, Peter quoted from Joel's prophecy and from other Old Testament passages to explain that the outpouring of the Spirit was in accordance with God's promises. On Pentecost, the Spirit was given to the church collectively and to the members individually. Yet there's something remarkable about Peter's Pentecost address. It doesn't focus on the Holy Spirit. No, instead it focuses on Christ. Peter tells all those gathered the story of Jesus. He focuses on how they delivered Jesus up to be crucified and killed, but how God had raised him from the dead. He says that Jesus was exalted at the right hand of God and that he was the one who poured out the Spirit. It's through this preaching of the gospel and the powerful working of the Spirit that many who heard Peter were convicted of their sins and turned to the Lord in repentance and faith. That day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. The last verses of Acts 2 describe the functioning of the early church. These Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Day by day, they attended the temple together. We know that the apostles used the temple courts to teach the people about the Lord Jesus. These Christians were excited to grow in their knowledge and understanding of what God had done for them in Jesus Christ and of how this had all been foretold by the prophets in the Old Covenant. These early Christians shared their possessions. They met together in members' homes and enjoyed fellowship by eating together. The Spirit bound them together in love and unity. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
Beloved, Jesus Christ continues to gather, defend, and preserve his church today. And Christ does so through the church. Based on Paul's teaching in Galatians 4, John Calvin uses the image of the church being our mother. Calvin said that no one can claim to have God as his father unless he has the church as his mother. Calvin views the church as the external means by which God calls his people to himself and through which he ministers to them. It shows how essential the church is for us. The same point is made in the Belgian Confession when it says that there is no salvation outside of the church. No one ordinarily comes to be united with Christ and a partaker of his benefits unless he or she has been gathered into the church where Christ is pleased to be present through his spirit and word. When the psalmist sings in Psalm 87 of the glorious things that are spoken of Zion, chief among them is the declaration that this one and that one were born in her. The author of Hebrews describes those who are saved as those who have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven. We need to be members, living members of a local church. Do you know why? Because the means of grace are found there. Christ has commissioned the church to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. These are the tools that Christ uses to bring us to faith and to preserve us in our faith. If we want to share in Christ and his gifts, the place to do so is in the midst of his people, the church. Beloved, it may be true that the church has hurt you or that it disappoints you. There's no excuse for the sins of its leaders or of its members. If you have issues with your local church, please address them. You need to work them out. Do you understand why? It's because you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And Christ works through the church to bring us and to keep us living in the faith. Sometimes Christians think that they can stand alone, apart from the church. That is foolish thinking. We're sinful people, weak and vulnerable to the attacks of the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. As pastor, I've observed what has happened to people who left the church while assuring consistory that they were committed to Christ, they would continue to serve him. Do you know what happens? They drift away. They no longer worship regularly. They don't hear the gospel. They don't benefit from the communion of saints. They don't have elders to hold them accountable, to warn and admonish them when they stray. It doesn't take long 
before any hint of Christ and his service disappears from their lives. The church is not man's work. It's not a voluntary association of like-minded people who prefer a certain style of worship. Well, the Bible teaches and what we profess is that the church is a divine work. Before the foundation of the world, God chose whom he would incorporate into his body, the church. In time, Christ came to establish a church on earth, founded on the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. Christ gathers, defends, and preserves a church for himself from out of this world. He does so through his word and spirit. The church is the bride of Christ. He loves her. He has promised to preserve her to the end. Despite the fact that we easily make a mess of Christ's glorious work, we need to join and unite with a faithful gathering of believers in the place where we live. Our very salvation depends on it. It brings us to our second point, and we'll see how the church is united by Christ's love. After speaking about the church, our catechism moves on to what we believe about the communion of saints. To understand what this is all about, we need to examine who the saints are and what it means to have communion with them. Often when we speak about the saints, we think about holy men and women in church history. The Roman Catholic Church In the Roman Catholic Church, saints are exemplary Christians who have lived special lives. People like Mary, the mother of Jesus, and like the apostles. But the Bible speaks differently about saints. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he addresses the church of God as those who are are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. To be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart for service to God. Christ is the one who sanctifies us. Through his blood, he washes us from our sins. Through his spirit, he renews us in his image. Because of Christ's work, we are the saints. Not just a few holy ones among us, but each one of us. What does it mean that we as saints have communion? With whom do we have communion? And what is the bond that unites us? To have communion means to share something, to have something in common. Fellowship, partnership, and relationship are words that express what it means to have communion with someone. Paul gets to the essence of what it means to have communion In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9, he speaks about how God has called us into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our catechism puts it this way, that believers all and every one, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. See, beloved, the thing that unites us is not that we come from a similar background. It's got nothing to do with our socioeconomic position in this world. Having a Dutch heritage or 
being white middle-class people is not what binds us together. The bond that unites us is that we all share in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The thing that holds us together is we all share in one body and one spirit. We all have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. We're united by a common faith in Christ. Together, we share in his blessings. The communion of saints also involves a second aspect. Our catechism explains it this way. It says that everyone is duty-bound to use their gifts for the benefit and the well-being of the other members. Christ has given many gifts to his church. He's given pastors and teachers to preach the good news, to comfort and encourage God's people with God's grace in Jesus Christ. He has given elders to lead God's people in his ways, to guard the church against false doctrine, to call those who stray to repentance. He's given deacons to see to the good progress of charity in the church, to provide for the needy, to promote with word and deed our unity in Christ. Our office bearers are men with their own weaknesses and shortcomings. We don't always fill our calling as we should. And yet God uses office bearers as his ambassadors. He blesses the church through their service. Ephesians 4 makes it clear that it's not only office bearers who have a calling within the church. Paul writes that God has given various office bearers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Thus it's not the office bearers themselves who are to do the work of ministry. Their job is to equip all the members of the church so that each one of us can serve in some way to build each other up in our faith. It's the responsibility of each one of us to be active in building up the church of Christ. We read this afternoon from Romans 12. Paul compares the church to a human body. He says that as a body has many members and they do not all have the same function, so it is with the church. Our bodies have eyes to see and ears to hear and feet to walk. And so in Christ's church, the members have a variety of gifts. Some are good at serving, others at teaching, others at exhorting, others at leading. Some have been blessed with material prosperity and can share these blessings. Others can do acts of mercy for those in need. What Paul stresses is that our service of one another needs to be motivated by the love of Christ. Such love is a gift of the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 5 verse 5 that God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Our love for one another needs to be genuine. You can't fake love. Paul writes, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
He encourages us to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer, to contribute to the needs of the saints, and to show hospitality. Now, beloved, you cannot love someone if you never spend time with them. You cannot pray for your brothers and sisters if you don't know what's going on in their lives. You cannot show hospitality if you never ask someone over to your place. You can only truly rejoice with people or weep with them if you have an intimate bond with them and are involved in their lives. You will not be able to maintain harmony with your brothers and sisters without ever confronting their sins, seeking repentance and reconciliation. Many Christians today view church as spectator sport. They view it the same way as going to a hockey game or attending a concert. You may be faithful in walking through the doors of the church building for Sunday worship. You may stand to sing and sit to listen and then walk out to the door into your personal life again. Yet we're called to be the body of Christ, the family of God, the communion of the saints. As such, our lives are meant to touch, to intersect, to connect with the other members of the church. How can you get involved? Practically speaking, what can you do so that you're using your gifts and talents for the benefit and the well-being of other members? Well, don't just walk to your car after the service. Take the opportunity to speak with your brothers and sisters. Invite fellow church members over for coffee or lunch on Sunday or for a barbecue through the week. Participate in your social group. Attend Bible study and use the opportunity to encourage each other in your walk with God. Some of us have been blessed to participate in the Conquer series this past winter and have seen the blessings of small group meetings where we can be vulnerable with one another. This fall, there will be opportunities to participate in Life Renewal. It's a program designed to provide support for those struggling with various life issues. For it to function well, it needs brothers and sisters who are willing to devote time to being a blessing for others. Beloved, are you a spectator? Or are you a participant in Christ's church? Are you using your God-given gifts for the benefit of the other members? At times, our attitude towards the communion of saints is, what can I get out of it? But that's self-centered. Instead, the question we need to ask ourselves is, How can I contribute to the life and the well-being of my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? It's by getting involved in each other's daily, normal lives that we can help each other along the pathway of life. And beloved, it's often by giving to others that God blesses us so richly in return. It brings us to our final point. And we'll see how the church is forgiven by Christ's blood. 
Lord's Day 21 concludes by asking, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? It teaches us about how rich we are to share in our Savior's redeeming work. With the catechism we say, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, satisfaction means payment, God will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. Here we're dealing with the fruit of Christ's redemptive work. Even though we're weak and sinful people, God does not view us that way. Even though we fall far short of what God requires of us, God doesn't hold it against us. Even though we mess up relationships with brothers and sisters in the church and often fail to use our gifts as we should, God forgives us. Why? Because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins with his blood on the cross. The result is we're allowed to share in Christ's righteousness. The result is we will never come into condemnation. It's the grace from which we, as congregation of Jesus Christ, may live. This grace that God has shown us will also have an effect on how we live as Christ's church. If we truly recognize the misery from which we've been delivered, we will live thankful lives to the praise and glory of God. If we're aware of our own sins and shortcomings, we'll be patient with the weaknesses of others. Those with humble hearts will not quickly make judgments about a brother or sister for whom Christ has died. The point is that those who live by grace will also deal graciously with others. Paul speaks about this in Colossians 3. He encourages us to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiving others is hard. If we've been deeply hurt, it can be incredibly difficult. The only way we'll ever be able to forgive those who have sinned against us is by grace. It's only by sharing in this gift of the Spirit that we'll be enabled to forgive others as the Lord first forgave us. Beloved, this afternoon we've seen what it means to be Christ's church. We believe that Christ is the one who gathers his flock together. That it's really important for us to be faithful in gathering for worship as much as we can. We've seen the blessings of sharing in communion with Christ and our calling to use our gifts and talents to love one another. We've considered the grace that we've received in Christ And how that should motivate us to live together in love and unity. Our prayer is that the Spirit will bind us together. That we may truly live as Christ's church 
in this place. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel by rising and singing hymn 52, stanzas 1, 2, and 5, stanzas 1, 2, and 5 of hymn 52.